0: Hello and welcome to this special Lupus Forum live webinar. I'm Ed Vital, I'm Chair of the Lupus Forum, and I'm an Associate Professor and Honorary Consultant and Rheumatologist at the University of Leeds. In this webinar, we're going to be discussing a case from clinical practice on lupus nephritis and the key issues around management and treatment for optimizing the care of our patients. Before we start, just a few housekeeping notes for your information. All the attendees are going to be on mute for the duration of this webinar, but we do really want to hear your questions. So if you could type those into the Q&A box, we'll aim to discuss as many of those as possible later in the broadcast. If you're having any technical difficulties, please use the chat box and a member of our background team will do all they can to assist you. So I'm delighted to be joined today by two specialists in the field of lupus nephritis, who are also members of the Lupus Forum steering committee. Uh, Maria Dalera, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Rheumatology at the University of California, San Francisco, and Brad Rovin, who's a Professor of Nephrology and the Medical Director at the Ohio State University Clinical Research Management Institute. So welcome to you and thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much. We've got two webinars in this series on lupus nephritis and our overall aim is to improve understanding of the pathophysiology of lupus nephritis, the importance of early diagnosis and the challenges of management and treatment, including the newest treatments. So webinar one, and that's today, we're going to be focusing on the standard therapies. In webinar two, which is on the 16th of October, we're gonna be focusing on the new and emerging therapies and how clinical practice might evolve due to these advances. So today focuses on the, standard, on the challenges with standard therapies. Okay, I'm now gonna hand over to Maria who's gonna be presenting our case and we'll be discussing the key issues that this case highlights.
1: Great, thank you so much, Ed. It's great to be with you all here today. This is a a case from my personal collection, a patient that I take care of at at UCSF. This is a 26-year-old self-reported Asian-American woman who in 2006 presented to our clinic with the following manifestations, Chilblain-LE, Raynaud phenomenon, Malar rash, arthralgias, fatigue, and lower extremity swelling. Her laboratories were notable for leukopenia with a white count of 2.8, hemoglobin of 9, platelets of 136. She was positive for anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. She had a low C3. She was positive for anti-RNP, SSA, and SSB. And her urinalysis showed 10 to 20 red blood cells with a urine protein to creatinine ratio uh, on a spot specimen of 0. 0.8 and her serum creatinine at the time was 0.8 which by the way was about her baseline we had re- uh, also received some L- some uh, prior records based upon her clinical presentation signs symptoms laboratory abnormalities we made the diagnosis of systemic lupus and we recommended a kidney biopsy because we suspected lupus nephritis however this patient decided that she did not want to undergo a kidney biopsy because of inconvenience of the procedure and also just some hesitancy around the procedure. Therefore, we decided to treat her presumptively for the possibility of lupus nephritis. Here you will see that we used 20 milligrams a day of prednisone. I would have liked to have used a higher dose in her, but this is all that she would accept. She was very reluctant to take medications as well. So we we negotiated with shared decision making and landed on 20 milligrams a day. She also started uh, hydroxychloroquine and she did start mycophenolate mofetil.
0: Uh, can I just and ask Ed, a few questions at this oh, point? Oh, sure, Ed, sure. Do you you Do you always do a biopsy when you start therapy, if you can do?
1: Yes. So so when we suspect lupus nephritis, we always do a biopsy to ensure that we have the right diagnosis because there are mimickers of lupus nephritis. We want to make sure we know the diagnosis. And then beyond that, we want to be able to understand and know the class of lupus nephritis. Is it a three? Is it a four? Is it a five? Is it a two? And then we also want to know the degree of activity and chronicity at that baseline biopsy because It will help us understand the trajectory of response, and if we do repeat kidney biopsies in the future, we will have a reference or a baseline to refer back to.
0: Yeah, and and um, some people I hear some people sort of saying that, well, if I'm going to if I've already decided to start treatment anyway, then do I really need to biopsy if I've already made a decision in my head? Maybe there's other lupus features too. I'm going to start cyclophosphamide. What then should we? You know, do I really need to do it?
2: so I, i'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here because yeah. I think the the idea of treating any disease with immunosuppression that has its own very large risk of adverse events really needs to be confirmed. Um, I think, and Maria, I'm sure agrees that in this setting, the chances that this patient has lupus nephritis are close to hundred percent. On the other hand, you don't know what else she has okay and one of the big things that we miss and I'll I'll just bring this out is antiphospholipid nephropathy so if the patient also has clotting in the kidney and that can actually occur in up to 20% of, of cases you can't see it any other way than with a biopsy and that does require a different treatment yeah. additionally and I I know this might be a futuristic statement we're a little bit hamstrung right now by the paucity of therapies, although, as you noted, next week, we'll be discussing the newer therapies. But as we get more and more sophisticated with our targeted therapies, which I think all of us would like to see happen, it's going to be really important to understand exactly what we're treating. I mean, not that we're treating lupus nephritis. Yes, we are. but what are the features of that lupus nephritis that may lend itself to using a particular therapeutic agent? I understand we're not there yet, but I think that doing the biopsy is essential in the management of all patients with LN.
1: And Um, jumping in as well, I completely uh, agree with everything that, that Brad said. And I think piggybacking on what he said when we make the diagnosis of lupus nephritis, we're committing our patient to three to five, if not more years of therapy. This is chronic therapy, chronic immunosuppression with the toxicities that go along with that as as Dr. Robin just mentioned. And so we wanna be absolutely sure we have the right diagnosis before embarking on years of therapy. And then also piggybacking on what Dr. Robin said, you know, uh, if we don't have the biopsy, and in this case, I didn't have the luxury of having the biopsy. Unfortunately, I tried very hard to get it initially, didn't get it. If Mm -hmm. we don't have the biopsy, and we treat presumptively, if the patient does not respond in a way that we would uh, expect, let's say the proteinuria is not coming down in the way that we would expect, or it's plateauing out, we don't understand what is going on. Is it that she never had lupus to begin with? Is it that it was all scar in the beginning and we just missed it? We don't understand how to judge and how to um, understand the response and the trajectory over time. So again, for those reasons, we want to have that baseline biopsy. So we're completely sure about what we're treating and what to expect.
0: Yeah. And if you do a follow-up biopsy because things are going badly and you see scarring, you don't know whether it's new or not whether it's occurred in spite of your treatment or whether you've actually held things stable or whatever yeah and then the other thing i just thought from what you'd said so far i mean i appreciate this was a, quite a few years ago um and you're making these decisions but um mycophenolate most people regard that as a standard treatment i guess is that what most of your patients get or at least did then or would you sometimes choose something different
1: yeah, so I think back back here back in in back in two thousand and and six when she was treated, uh, we chose mycophenomomfetil because of my high suspicion for for lupus nephritis, and we know that uh, this is one of our first line therapies that is backed up by evidence. And yes, you're right. That we could have chosen something like cyclophosphamide as well. This is, of course, in the days before we have our newly approved therapies. Mm. Um, but in this situation, I think just knowing this particular patient and also her other manifestations that she was exhibiting with her um, with her cutaneous lesions that I mentioned. In addition, we thought that mycophenolate would 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 be a very good choice for her.
0: Yeah, and the um, I agree and. The steroid dose, I guess, back then, and most people would have said it was a bit low, but perhaps perhaps, there could be a little bit more debate about whether twenty milligrams was an acceptable steroid dose now well i I think
2: that i I think Maria did as best she could, given the patient situation who and she seemed to have a lot of input yeah. into her uh, medical management, which I think is good. But sometimes we need to help educate the patients a little bit. Um, You're right. At that point, this would have been considered a low dose of prednisone. Fast forward to the future, that wouldn't be such a bad dose, probably. And my suspicion is we've been using too much steroid for many, many years, and we're starting to see those uh, sorts of um, uh, that sort of uh, idea with the newer trials, but I don't fault anything uh, here. Yeah. And I think that I think that um, you know it's it's really difficult when you're sort of constricted as to what you can do because twenty certainly twenty at the beginning might not be enough to get a very inflammatory lupus nephritis under control. One of my sort of things that I teach my fellows all the time is the real reason we use steroids is to control inflammation very quickly. And um, and one of the things that high-dose uh, solumedrol or intravenous leukocorticoid does is, you know, immediately uh, start to work on inflammation. And we don't have any other drugs presently that that do that. And of course, the longer inflammation, even chronic inflammation is allowed to progress, the more damage uh, to the kidney parenchyma, and uh, which results most often in chronic scarring and loss of parenchyma. So um, I think I think this was really a challenging case, as it turns
0: out. Um, mm. and-, and that's where I should let you continue, Maria. I interrupted you, but I just wanted to get those uh, questions about the first decisions.
1: No, those are this is great discussion. So this is perfect um, and important questions. Um okay, so then unfortunately, um over the next two years, this patient who who was, you know, very well educated and um, very knowledgeable about her disease, but very busy in her own life. She was trying to go to graduate school, trying to balance a lot of things. And she just didn't follow up with us as much as we would have hoped. And this was a challenge. And then it turns out that she wasn't taking her medications the way we we would have hoped as well. And I think that many people that are attending this webinar, I'm sure, can relate to this. And this is the challenge with um, I think helping our patients adhere to medications, it's not easy to do. And these are, these medications are not easy to take. I think particularly mycophenolate and also prednisone has side effects, um, as anybody who ever, has ever taken it would attest to. Um, so this was the challenge. Then in 2008, uh, she comes to clinic and she says, oh gosh, I'm experiencing so much more fatigue and my leg swelling is back. I'm having low grade fevers. At this time, her spot UPCR is now increased to 1.1. Her serum creatinine is still the same at 0.8. We can talk about if that's reassuring or not. Um, And at this point, she agrees to undergo her first kidney biopsy, which shows class four plus class five. She has cellular crescents. She also has interstitial inflammation and she has 20% interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy. And the one comment I'll make here is the date again, here is 2008. And this is prior to when our nephropathologists were reporting um, the activity index score and the chronicity index score, which really, I think, at least at my institution, came back with the 2018 update of the ISN RPS classification. So this is all all really that I had. And I had text as well. And by the way, there were no um, vascular changes that were reported in the text. So for example, no thrombotic microangiopathy or other lesions that would be concerning for antiphospholipid syndrome nephropathy, which is a great point that Dr. Roven brought up earlier.
0: So- but this has got some nasty features on it, this biopsy, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, I, I really think, um, Maria, if if we start to think about this, she's had something going on for now two years and this is a pretty high level of inflammation i understand she's only been partially treated because of adherence issues etc but what really worries me is that you're already seeing um, a lot of tubulointerstitial interstitial damage that is chronic and never going to get better um, and it really sort of speaks to what we were talking about earlier: getting onto inflammation as quickly as possible and controlling it. Uh, so I think you know there is some danger now uh, in in this biopsy in terms of what may happen to the kidney in the future. And um, we'll be interested to see what what you did next.
0: Let's see what did happen.
1: <laughs> may, I, may I ask a question, Ed? Is that okay if I jump into? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. I was curious about, you know, what Brad thought about that, you know, is he reassured by the fact that the serum creatinine is 0.8? Maybe speak about the fact that you can have significant loss of kidney parenchyma without having that bump in serum creatinine yeah. and I shouldn't be reassured, correct?
2: Yeah, you should not <laughs> you should not be reassured the the uh, changes in in serum creatinine are not linear. And you have to really lose a significant amount of kidney parenchyma to start to see the creatinine uh, increase. Once you have damage sufficiently uh, sufficient to cause an increase in creatinine, then after that, increasing damage causes increasing creatinine, that's clear. But in these early days... Uh, early time of of sort of gathering enough damage, getting up to that threshold where you'll start to see the creatinine change, um, it can be very misleading. And so this is really where the biopsy uh, helps us understand what kind of damage has occurred to the kidney. And I'll, I'll just point one other thing out. This biopsy report does not list Uh, glomerulosclerosis. So you don't know how many glomeruli have become obsolescent. This is a young person uh, who should have a pristine tubular interstitium and no uh, sclerotic glomeruli.
1: Great. Thank thank you. Um, Okay. So I'll continue with the case if that's that's good. So at this point, after getting that previous biopsy on the previous slide, um, we had to make a, a decision. And at this point, um, we decided, I decided to go ahead with the urolupus nephritis cyclophosphamide regimen because she had progressed despite mycophenolate mofetil. Of course, she wasn't completely adherent to mycophenolate mofetil, and I was worried that she wouldn't be able to be adherent to it. So we made the switch. She agreed to this. And I decided to follow this with azathioprine maintenance, again, thinking in the back of my mind that she had been on MMF, she had progressed on MMF, so I wanted to give her something different for maintenance. So that was my rationale, we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Note that at the time, I did check her thiopurine methyltransferase activity and it was normal. Uh, we can talk about, there's another enzyme now that we're checking, the, the NUD15, uh, which we didn't have back then. Uh, and I would so I didn't check that, uh, which is also important for thinking about metabolism of azathioprine. She responded beautifully, and she had a complete renal response after about 10 months. However, she then developed significant neutropenia and anemia on the azathioprine, so I had to stop the azathioprine. At that time, we transitioned her back to mycophenolate mofetil, and counseled her to be adherent. She was happy to go back to mycophenolate because she was familiar with that medication. So she went back on that. Unfortunately, um, she was only intermittently adherent again with the mycophenolate because she was feeling well. She was back at school and was just having difficulty taking her medications. Now in 2012, her urine protein to creatinine ratio rose to two grams. Her serum creatinine has now bumped up to 1.0 and her urinalysis also had red blood cells she, bless her soul, agreed to a repeat kidney biopsy because at this point I was concerned that she was having worsening disease and I wanted to understand where we were. And we can talk about that, the decision to do a repeat kidney biopsy at this time of what I was concerned to be a flare of her LN. She got the repeat kidney biopsy and it showed a class three and class five. Uh, She had decreased activity compared to the biopsy in 08. No change in chronicity, at least in this biopsy sample.
0: Would you have done the same, Brad?
1: Uh, Yes,
2: uh, we're very much in favor of looking at repeat biopsies for for a number of reasons, many of which Maria has already alluded to. Um, But the delta really gives us some idea of how the kidney is responding and and sort of helps us prognosticate a little bit. Um, So totally agree with this.
0: And there's an interesting point here about that choice of um, maintenance agents, isn't there? Because Euro lupus, as it was originally published, was cyclophosphamide followed by azathioprine, but we we don't have to do it that way, do we?
2: You know, I you know when I do, I, I have used I like Euro lupus quite a bit, uh, and and I think it can be given safely and and very effective. Um, but we usually follow it with mycophenolate. I absolutely understand why Maria didn't choose to do that uh, mm. because of the past issues. And, and again, the patient was is only intermittently adherent to her mycophenolate. But um, I think the azathioprine, I know that was the original way the trial was designed, but I think that's a little bit less potent in my in my experience anyway. Yeah. yeah. what happened
1: next. Okay, great. Um, Okay, so at this point in time, I was extremely concerned, as you can imagine. But back and forth with this particular patient, she felt comfortable with the mycophenolate mofetil, did not want to do anything else, did not want to transition to any other therapy, including more cyclophosphamide. And so we made the decision together that she would increase her dose to three grams a day. So recall that previous to this, her prescribed dose was two grams a day. She agreed to make this change. And then in 2013, she actually was feeling quite well, and she decided that she wanted to become pregnant. Again, this is a common scenario that we face Mm -hmm. in our patients uh, with, with lupus. So at this point in time, we had to transition her to a medical regimen that would be compatible with pregnancy and the decision that I made was to transition her from mycophylite mofetil to tacrolimus. Remember she had been on azathioprine in the past, but had progressed through azathioprine, at least that's what seemed to have happened. We transitioned her to tacrolimus. However, soon after starting this, she developed a cholestatic pattern of liver injury, which was quite interesting to me. And this was interesting. When I did a literature review, I found that this was a reported toxicity, although rare, to the calcium urine inhibitors. We stopped tacrolimus and the liver enzyme elevation resolved pretty dramatically within two to three weeks. So I felt very confident this is what it was from. Um, So now we're a little bit stuck. And at this point, she said, I want no medications except for the hydroxychloroquine and at this point, she was on a low dose of, of prednisone. She became pregnant. During pregnancy, her urine protein creatinine ratio rose to a peak of 2.7. Her serum creatinine fell. And we can talk about that as well. You know, how these kidney parameters change in the course of normal pregnancy or pregnancy in the setting of lupus nephritis. That is what happened. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. She ended up delivering a healthy baby girl at 37 weeks. However, this was in the setting of severe preeclampsia. After delivery, her UPCR fell to 1.5 and then then plateaued around that point. Um, And then after she finished breastfeeding, I was able to convince her that we had to start her on a maintenance therapy for her lupus nephritis. And she agreed to restart mycophenolate mofetil because she felt most comfortable with that particular agent.
0: Pregnancy is just so often a common theme in some of the most difficult patients, isn't it? Um, And I I just wanted to ask a little bit more to to both of you really, is the kind of things when a patient often says, I I want to become pregnant in the context of lupus nephritis, what are the kind of things that we should look out for to tell them when the time's right, what they can do, uh, advice to manage it?
2: I really like my patients uh, to be uh, have be in remission from their lupus nephritis <clears throat> prior to uh, trying uh, for uh, pregnancy, and um, of course, not in charge of that. <laughs> and uh, that often happens uh, with with disease that may still be be active. Um, I also appreciate the fact that if I were to become pregnant and have a baby, I would like to be on no medications or as few medications as possible. So I feel comfortable if the patient is is really in remission and has been in a stable remission that I can have them off immunosuppression and continue hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and then also i think a uh, uh, baby aspirin to try and mitigate the risk of, of uh, preeclampsia but in patients who have ongoing disease and it's you know several years past here um i assume that her disease had been well controlled but she still had proteinuria then i would have had her on something and I think at this point, though, Maria, you, you've run out of choices, haven't you? I, I don't know what else you could put her on.
0: I mean, you've got azathioprine and tacrolimus, right, as you to choose from. Well, but I mean, she's
2: reacted to both badly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: And that's the other point, isn't its Is When having put them on something, a pregnancy-friendly choice, do you then leave them on it for a little while to check things are OK before giving them the go-ahead?
1: Yes, absolutely. I like to do that. And yeah, so, as you know, as Brad, yes. I, I Sorry, think it's. Worth, I interrupted Brad. Yes. No,
2: no, I think it's worth pointing out. I, I do the same thing. I think it's worth pointing out that because her proteinuria ro- rose during pregnancy with a concomitant decrease in serum creatinine, that's not reflecting disease activity per se. So she doesn't need you know, a biopsy or anything acute, uh, that's really, you know, the increase in in kidney perfusion during pregnancy. Renal blood flow can go up tremendously during pregnancy. In normal pregnancy, it does. And so even patients with normal kidneys will show a drop in their serum creatinine. So this drop in serum creatinine uh, with this small rise in proteinuria really suggests just the hyperfiltration, the physiologic renal blood flow of pregnancy um so that's a little bit reassuring uh in 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 her case
0: But she got quite a good outcome actually
2: she did i surprisingly i I really i I know yeah
1: shocking but these are these are very challenging and i i agree i think um i would love to hear both of your thoughts too in terms of you know, when I when I see and we see this in patients, even who are well controlled, as as Brad was just discussing, we like to have have a, 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 a our patients in complete renal response for six months, ideally, before pregnancy. Often we don't have that luxury and we have to right. just kind of go with the flow and do our best. Um, but um, Even in those patients, you know, we see changes in proteinuria in pregnancy. And I always like to think about three possibilities, especially after 20 weeks. One is, as was just discussed, the hyperfiltration of pregnancy, right? Blood volume increases by about 50%, GFR increases. So we can see proteinuria on that basis in a patient with with, um, baseline low levels of proteinuria, increasing proteinuria. Number two would be preeclampsia, which happened in this case. And then number three is a flare of her lupus nephritis. And often we're thinking about those three differential diagnostic possibilities. And it's very challenging in the setting of pregnancy to know what we're dealing with. And sometimes we have to use, you know, other sorts of clues. Is our patient having extra renal manifestations that are flaring that would make me think this is more of an LN flare? Are there other manifestations that are making me worry about preeclampsia? You know, what is happening here? But often, at least from myself, I don't have a definitive answer. We don't tend to do kidney biopsies in pregnancy, but maybe I would love to hear what Dr. Robin thinks about that. Um,
2: They can be done um, in pregnancy uh, safely. Uh, Obviously, we do them under ultrasound as opposed to any other sort of Procedure that would give radiation. Um, and depending on sort of the situation of the patient and how far along they are, I've actually done biopsies with patients in the sitting position uh, during pregnancy. It's not anything I prefer to do, <laughs> frankly. Um, but, um, you know, had this patient's proteinuria gone up, and her serum creatinine gone up, suggesting something else was going on. Um, that might've been a reason to consider, but then you're sort of stuck. I mean, this is a really hard case because what would you treat her what with other do? than dose steroids? Yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah. So we better carry on actually. So okay. let's see what happened next.
1: Okay, so then um, now we're fa- fast forward to 2017. Her serum creatinine is now increased. Remember, she started at 0.8 way back years ago. Now she's 1.17. Um, this is after years after her pregnancy, but her UPCR never fully recovered after that pregnancy. And now her UPCR is 1.8. I really don't know what's happening, how much of this is just damage versus activity, she does agree to a third kidney biopsy. And at this point it's pure class five. There isn't any change in chronicity, but she now has moderate arteriosclerosis and arteriolosclerosis, which had not been present on previous biopsies. At this point, she insisted on staying on her mycophenolate mofetil. It was the only medication that she trusted. And remember, I can't use ASA, I can't use the CNI, so I'm a little bit stuck. Um, over the next few years, she was intermittently, uh, following up and intermittent adherence due to her young daughter now keeping her very busy. And then unfortunately, just recently, a few months ago, now we're in the present time, we admitted her to my hospital, uh, in acute kidney injury with her serum creatinine at 1.5 back to lower extremity edema. And then she has a UPCR of 3.5 this is just four months ago, she agreed to a fourth kidney biopsy, which was back to class three plus class five, which was how it was years ago. Um, but at this time, we made a different treatment decision because now we have alternative therapies that are available to us. And we decided to treat her with the urolupus cyclophosphamide plus bulimimab regimen.
0: Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I see what you um. Can we just go back to that slide a little bit, just to talk about that one a little bit? That's just, do you, would you ever use higher dose cyclophosphamide for a patient in that situation, you know, where you've had a number of relapses and you know a loss of a significant loss of function?
1: Well, I can tell you what why I chose this and then and then Brad can chime in. But um, the reason why I felt confident with the Lupus is because she had responded so beautifully to it in the past. And I had that knowledge that she had responded well to this. And that's why I felt confident giving it. And I always knew in the back of my mind that if she didn't respond the way that I expected her to respond, I could always add in more cyclophosphamide. Yeah but i would like to talk about this issue because we hear about we hear people say this issue and i think it actually came up in one of the chat questions which is you know this notion that if there are quote unquote severe features on biopsy or quote unquote if there is you know aki that we should always use the nih regimen and i've never been able to find i think robust data to support that although you hear that being said uh, but I haven't, you know, even when you look at the ALMS data, patients who came in with a markedly reduced EGFR below 30, there was equal response to MMF versus the pulse IV cyclophosphamide. Um, so I, I, I've i never been able to really understand that line of, of reasoning, but I, will, I would love to hear what both of you think.
2: So I think this is a very uh, relevant question because it comes up quite a bit. The, the data to suggest uh, that we use, you know, high dose cyclophosphamide in in very bad disease is mostly historic, uh, you know, tradition as opposed to any any real data. I think what people argue is that the Euro lupus protocol. Uh, Many, if not most of those patients had mild to moderate disease as opposed to severe disease. So the idea came out that, you know, reasonably that, you know, we hadn't been tested in severe disease. I did pull all the literature I could together many years ago, and I call it a Roven meta-analysis because I'm not a statistician and I don't know how to do a meta-analysis, but pulled all the data together comparing cyclophosphamide and that that time it was NIH cyclophosphamide versus mycophenolate for severe disease. And my conclusion was that really, as you said, with the ALMS data, both could be used in in severe lupus uh, nephritis. Um, I I do wanna make it clear to the people who are listening, you know, NIH cyclophosphamide uh, or any cyclophosphamide has to be adjusted for the patient's GFR. Um, because if you don't, you can retain and, and develop a marrow toxicity. So it would be really uh, important to know what her GFR is. And I see she's developed acute kidney injury, but I suspect her creatinine after her pregnancy with severe preeclampsia was not normal. And I suspect her GFR was not normal. And I'm also very worried about what you're showing on the biopsy. A, a young woman with moderate Arterial sclerosis already is 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 in potential trouble kidney wise
0: hmm. okay well that's a great case so um i think we can just summarize the, the the kind of points we've discussed there and then we'll move to some questions so we talked about the initial biopsy when to do it based on on proteinuria um, that it's used before starting therapy in most people, what some of the main findings mean and the acceptance of that by the patient and the physician. We talked a bit about the initial therapy choices around the induction agents and doses of steroids that should be used, and about some of these issues about adherence, whether that's in terms of tolerability or the patient's own beliefs. And we, we actually, we didn't really touch on drug level monitoring. Maybe that can come up a little bit in the questions. Um, I mean, there's lots of issues there about pregnancy, around how to plan and manage your pregnancy, how to interpret proteinuria changes during the pregnancy, and then what some of the data are telling us on maintenance therapies and, and on, on, on the use of repeat biopsies. So I think then it's time for us to turn to some of the questions. So we've got a few questions in the chat already, which I'll I'll start on with, but if anyone watching has any others, you can just keep adding them in now. And we'll try and get through as many as we can in the next 10 minutes or so. Um, so just to look through these, um, again, that was a question about the comparison of mycophenolate and cyclophosphamide about in, I think this one was asking, maybe in the more severe cases with a lot of complement consumption or high double-stranded DNA antibody titers, does that change things at all?
2: It 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 doesn't really in terms of evidence based uh, yeah. medicine. Um, y- you know, I my group we are very cyclophosphamide oriented, and and the truth is we have converted almost all of our practice to Euro lupus uh, cyclophosphamide, uh, followed right. by mycophenolate and really have seen very good results. I, I really reserve high dose cyclophosphamide for patients who have not done well otherwise.
0: And do you think just that choice between mycophenolate, urolupus, high dose cyclophosphamide change depending on the patient's demographics, their ethnic group or their, their, their ancestry?
2: Well, <clears throat> this is a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> There's a a rumor Uh, suggesting um, that uh, cyclophosphamide may not be as good in in certain ethnic groups uh, from the ALMS data. Uh, That was a post hoc analysis. uh, And if you look very carefully at the data, there was not. A, there was numerically more responses in the mycophenolate group than the cyclophosphamide group. It did not reach statistical significance, and and uh, I think that's a very uh, difficult call.
0: And I mean, the way these things are coded and termed gets very very messy as well, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I I have used cyclophosphamide both high dose and lupus in patients of all ethnicities and, and races without difficulty yeah. so i don't really make a choice on that basis
0: okay and then there's something else actually that's come that's come up in one of the questions that i was thinking of myself which is i mean this may be uk practice but we use lots and lots of rituximab And that probably would have come along at some point in this case for us, I think. Is that different for you, Maria?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think where I practice, um, first of all, it's very difficult to be able to get rituximab to treat lupus because it is not FDA approved Mm. for the treatment of lupus. And it used to be years ago that uh, we could sometimes kind of get it paid for, but now, honestly, I can't. It's very, very challenging. There are hoops that I can jump through if I need to. I do use it, and when I'm successful in getting it, in in those patients who are truly refractory and progress through everything. In fact, I just saw a patient on Friday who meets those criteria, and I was able to get it for her. This particular patient Um, I, I wasn't quite there yet, but, but I think, I think that the, the attendee who asked the question raises a very good point at some point, you know, could I have used it? And the answer is, is yes. I just don't have the same evidence base for rituximab that I have for the other agents. And I knew that she had responded very well to that first course of urolupus, which is why I went back to it. Now, let's just say now we're in 2023 what if she doesn't respond to this combination of urolupus and belimumab that I'm giving her now, let's say six months from now, she's progressing? Absolutely, yes, I would try to get her then uh, the combination of rituximab. And I tend to use it in combination with with a dose of cyclophosphamide, uh, as uh, I learned from people like like David Eisenberg. I know that it can be used in many different ways, but that's the way that I tend to use it. So as I think it's a great point. It's just very difficult for me to get it.
0: And if if Liz Lightstone was here, she'd say she gives it to everybody.
1: Exactly, (laughs) which is interesting. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, and we'll probably come to that a bit more on the next webinar, I suppose, these combination therapies from the start, won't we?
2: Yes, I I just, the one thing that one could have considered in this particular case, would be at least if you give it you know they have a drug on board and it's on board for several months yeah uh, yeah you know you wanted to talk a little bit about drug level monitoring and patient history her history suggests that she's not very adherent for whatever reason Um and so that kind of regimen where you can take it and forget about other things, you know, forget about it for several months it is quite appealing to patients.
0: Yeah, I think that might be one of the reasons why rituximab in some patients seems so much better than the conventional therapies in routine practice. It's just take
2: it, have- whereas
0: in a trial, that doesn't. Or it's not always quite the same right right and there's also a question in the chat which i i think i can answer which is somebody asking what about these anti-drug antibodies with rituximab which it, it is an issue because i use a lot of it and i've got a lot of people who do great on it at first and lose response after time and um i i think it's a combination one is just the immunology of lupus they make a lot of antibodies uh the other might be to do with the treatment the, the the gap between treatments that often works out in the lupus you know you tend not to be giving it all the time like you do in some diseases you tend to be allowing these gaps where the antibodies might well but again there is an answer to that in webinar two for sure um yeah. there's also a question that's going on to the pregnancy issue there's a couple of others here uh there's one about what about complement levels during pregnancy do we do we know what do they change? Can we can we rely on those?
1: Yeah, so I mean just if we think about we we know that during the course of a normal pregnancy, hepatic synthesis of a variety of proteins goes up, right? Yeah. Including complement, which is primarily made in the liver. And so therefore, the way I look at it is I expect a normal increase in complement levels during the course of pregnancy. And when you start to see those levels fall, it's even more worrisome, right, that this patient is having complement consumption likely on the basis of active immunologic disease. It takes a lot
0: of activity before the complement level falls, doesn't it?
1: Exactly. So it's much more concerning for me when I when I see that. And I think that the other the caveat that I like to teach my fellows is that um, because you normally see an increase in complement during pregnancy, don't let that falsely reassure you in the setting of lupus, right? Because you might see a slight increase in in complement, but it's still not uh, normal for that. that It's still low for that particular patient. So just be Mm. careful with that yeah.
0: And then there's another question here. This is, this is quite a good one, given, given the case we've just discussed is, is it possible to manage lupus nephritis without repeated biopsies? So I guess in this case, if you, if you've done that first one and you're like, yes, okay, I'm, I know I've got lupus nephritis, I've excluded other things like antiphospholipid, and I I, I know what I'm dealing with. Do you, how essential are the follow-ups?
2: Well, I can't mandate it, but uh, <laughs> I do. So it is a really good question. And, and of course, you know, the answer to that question is we really need to develop some sort of non-invasive way to understand how things are going in the lupus kidney, sort of not at specific time points, but continuously continuously. So that's coming. I truly believe that's coming. We have some nice biomarkers now that seem to be having some traction and looking at activity and chronicity uh, in the kidney and they're in the urine. So it's not invasive. Um, clearly, you know, and, and in the old days, we used to do a biopsy and you could manage a disease. But I, I don't know if you were managing as it as well as you possibly could. And I think some of the biopsies here uh, that in Maria's case were quite essential, especially, you know, you can say, well, that patient had four biopsies and I get that, but, you know, she was mostly proteinuric the whole time. And then all of a sudden she has a lot of proteinuria and a rise in creatinine. That would have been uh, really an indication to me that you really have to know what's going on because that is not typical for her and in the course of her disease and she had class five before and now that it's become now you you can have acute kidney injury with class five for sure if you have a lot of proteinuria and you, you sort of muck up the tubules but that is not the case you had 3.5 grams of proteinuria so i definitely think while you can manage a case over the long term with a single biopsy my guess is most patients are going to need a biopsy at some point or another to help you figure out what's going on so I'm going to say, I'm going to be on the side of getting more biopsies than the fewer. <laughs> uh,
0: I think, and I think I agree with you. Do you agree, Marie? I well, agree. obviously <laughs> do, but you, you showed us that you did For <laughs> Okay. Well, that's great. Um, and, and I think, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. We covered most of the questions, but I hope, I hope everyone enjoyed that and found it useful for clinical practice. I'd like to thank my co-hosts there for, uh, for for speaking today and as well and the audience as well for attending and taking part. Um, we'd really appreciate it if you could fill in this quick evaluation form that's going to be sent out to you after this broadcast. That will help us to improve our webinars and for you to tell us what you liked and what you enjoyed. Um, the live streamed version of our discussion today is going to be available on our YouTube channel shortly after we conclude. And most importantly, if you enjoyed this webinar, then you should sign up for part two. That's happening on the 16th of October, which is at 5 p.m. here in British summertime, which I think is 9 a.m. in California, midday Eastern, 6 p.m. Central European. Um, and we'll be basing our discussions on another interesting case, just like this one, but this time we're going to be put much more of the emphasis on the new therapies and the treatment regimens, which is, is indeed some of the other questions we've been asked today, and we'll try to make sure those get covered in webinar too. So that's one you really don't want to miss, but until then, I wish, I wish you all the best in your clinical practice and goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank
2: you.